Welcome to FNT Bible Talk, where we're going through the Bible and showcasing God's glory through His unified story. I'm your host, Felix Birch. On this episode, we'll be talking about Exodus 28 through 40, Israel's idolatry, Moses' intercession, and the tabernacle. Hey guys, welcome to FNT Bible Talk. In this week's episode, we're going to cover Exodus 27 through 40. And sadly, it is just me behind the microphone today and without my lovely bride. So I apologize that you have to hear my voice the whole time. But with that said, we're going to go ahead and jump right in. And so last week's episode, what we saw is we saw God deliver the Israelites and cross the Red Sea. We saw him show grace and mercy to them in the wilderness. We saw him make this covenant vow and marriage with them in Exodus 19. And then we saw God give the law and the commandments to them and even the instructions for the tabernacle. And these are all extremely important things for us to understand that where they've come from and now where they're going in the final ending of this book. So we'll start in chapter 31 today. There's so much I could say. I went through this trying to understand what would I talk about, and I think this episode would have taken me an hour to cover everything with just from these few chapters here. But really, we're just going to start in Exodus 31. And so in Exodus 31, what we see is we see God speaking to Moses on top of the mountains. And what he says to Moses is that he's going to gift these certain men in the in the congregation to do something, right? To build. And actually, I want to read it to you. So Exodus 31, verse 3 says, and this is God speaking, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and carving wood, to work in every craft. And this is what, what's really powerful about this, is what we're going to see the first thing here in this reading as far as some awesome stuff for us, is that these were ordinary people, but God was gifting them. Okay, These men, their ability did not originate with themselves. Their power and their anointing and their or skill or craftsmanship came from God. But it wasn't just it wasn't just something God gave them just so they could have. But God gave them these skills for a reason. And the reason was so that they could build everything that was instructed of the tabernacle and everything that would go inside of the tabernacle. And this was a really important job because you have to understand what was the tabernacle. I think we look at the tabernacle and we understand, okay, it's significant because they are going to do sacrifices in there. And yes, that's important. But the big thing about the tabernacle was this, is that the tabernacle was the place where God's presence would dwell. And according to God, he would dwell in the midst of his people through the tabernacle. You see, it has always been God's desire from from the Garden of Eden to dwell with man and to man to dwell in his presence. And so we see, and, and, and even from Eden, we see this desire of God. And when sin comes, we've already covered this, but as when sin comes, that fellowship was broken and they were casted out of the garden. And angels were actually put at the exit of the garden to not let people come in. And from that point on, it's like God has been on this, in a sense, a mission to bring men back into his presence where they can know him and he can be in the midst of them. And so the tabernacle is kind of the first place we really see, man, God's presence is going to dwell on earth in this place again. And yet, 
God uses these men to build this. This is incredible to build something. But what's so significant about it is not just to build a place where he can dwell, but to build a place that all the people of Israel can benefit from. So this has so much application for our lives too. Because you see, God gave these men abilities and gifts and talents to use for the people of Israel so that the presence of God could dwell with the people of Israel. And this is exactly what 1 Corinthians 12 really tells us about gifts, right? Even in the New Testament, why are gifts given? Verse 7 in Corinthians actually tells us that there's a manifestation of gifts from the Spirit alone, right? And I'm paraphrasing, but given from the Spirit, and it is for the common good of the people. And just like those men who received these gifts to build the tabernacle so all of the congregation could be blessed and encounter the presence of God, that is what we have today. God gives you and I gifts and things in our lives that are used, that are manifestations of the Spirit of God that are used to bless everyone in the church and the common good. It's so powerful. But what it's also really neat about it is that these men, their giftings would look very ordinary today. You'd be like, okay, they're a carpenter. You know, they're a wood chopper. What does that really mean? But what their gift was seemed so ordinary, it was used for such a supernatural cause. And I even think of Acts chapter 6. So in Acts chapter 6, what we find is we find the people of God in the beginning of the church. There's some widows who have been neglected. And the, the apostles gather and they, and they begin to talk about what they're going to do. And they say, well, we'll appoint some men to meet the widow's needs and to take care of them. But the prereq or the thing they look for that the men must have is simply this. Are they full of the Spirit? You see, these men were given a task that would many people would consider ordinary. Oh, they're just taking care of the widows. But the apostles understood everything. Whether you are an apostle or you're the person who takes care of the widows, we have to be filled with the Spirit. And it's the same for us today. Every single one of us, whatever we do in the kingdom of God, whether it's working in the nursery, whether it's helping with Sunday school classes, whether it's preaching the sermon, whether it's planning a church, whatever it might be, big, small, little, or even our ordinary jobs, we have to understand we must be filled of the Spirit and empowered by the Holy Ghost to help us to be able to do these things so that it can minister to the whole body. And one of the beautiful things about Acts chapter 6 that happens is because these men were able to take care of the widows, it says the apostles were able to focus on what they needed to do and the gospel would continue to grow out and the church continued in everything that it was supposed to be doing. So what seems like an ordinary thing to us, maybe being a nursery worker or getting to the church early to help move things or to move tables for dinner on the grounds or whatever it might be, these things that seem kind of ordinary to us, if we live a life that is spirit-filled, they're essential. They're essential and important to the body of Christ, to the purpose of God, because it frees up other things to happen for other people to use their gifts, for us to use all our gifts. And so I think this story is actually a really cool way for us to look at God is the one who enables us to serve God's people for His glory. And He does so by anointing us with things that maybe might not have seemed really, really awesome, but in the long haul, really, really bless the body and even bless you. And so that's, I think, what you see right off the bat with Exodus 31 is these men who are enabled by God to do it and how we also are given gifts today for the common good of people in our church and for the glory of God and, the, and it's through the manifestation of the Spirit. So we, it really just emphasizes this, we need the Spirit. So the story picks up in Exodus 32 and I'm going to go ahead and read some scriptures to us. 
It says in verse 1, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened because, because of him or become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink up and rose to play. And so we see the chapter open right off the back and we see this rebellion. And so the people of God have been given these commandments and God is blessing them. And they immediately build idols and fall into sin. And this really is just a picture of our own heart, what we really are. We were no better than these people, if we're being honest. This is an example of the heart of men. This is what men do. Men are prone to follow idols, right? We hear that, that great hymn that says, prone to wonder. That's what we do. And that these Israelites, that's exactly what they did here. They declared, make us gods who shall go before us. They wanted to follow something that would be what they wanted, right? They would be the kind of God that they wanted. This shows us the condition of just the human heart, that we are created, and it's true. We are created to follow something, but that something was intended to be God. It was not intended to be a lifeless creature or something of this earth or even people, but we were intended to follow after God. And so that's why I feel like people are prone to wonder. They're prone to follow something because God made us that way inside of us to follow Him. And so what we do, because we're flawed and messed up, is that we are bent towards creating idols and things that we want and preferences that we desire. And so one of the cool things about this story, though, is that there's so much we can learn. This is what 1 Corinthians 10, 6-7 says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. This teaches us, right? This teaches us that. These things that the Israelites did, we can learn as examples for us. And there's so much that's good for us to understand here. So there's a couple of things I want to look at that's important. So regarding our own lives and learning from them is this. We can make idols when we disobey God's word. And that may come across as very obvious to you. That may come across as, well, no, duh. And it's true, right? It is obvious. But I think it's something that we don't remind ourselves often of. These people knew the word of God, y'all. They knew what God had already asked them to do. Then they, in fact, had already agreed to it. Exodus 24, 3 makes it very clear that they knew what God's word was, but they had total disregard for God's word. They did not care about what God wanted. They wanted to worship the kind of God they wanted in their own lives. And so we have to really understand this. We do not declare how to live or worship God. We must be people that obey and understand what God's word is and not disregard it. Because if we do, if we disregard God's word on things in our lives, we will begin to shape a God to our liking and to our preferences and to what we think and how he should be. And then we'll declare, oh yeah, this is the God that got us out of Egypt. This is the God that saved me. And God is sitting back and saying, I'm not that God. I, I, I'm not like that thing. 
You know, and so we have to understand God's word is important. We will make idols when we disobey God's word. And even though as obvious that may seem, it is fundamentally true for us to understand we cannot disregard God's word. The second thing I think that we see here that's really good with regarding this idolatry and how they fell into this is that we will make idols when we fail to trust God's plan. And in fact, that's what it said, right? It said that the people begin to gather and say to themselves, you know, where, where's Moses? And we don't know where he's at and we don't know what's going on. When the honest truth is maybe they didn't know how long he'd be gone for, but they knew where he went. They knew that he was up on the mountaintop. They knew he had told them where he was going. And he even told Aaron what he, to stay in charge. But these people did not trust the plan of God. And I think we have to learn some things from this in our own lives. There are times when we don't understand what God's doing. We don't understand where he's leading us. We just know he's given us some direction and we can either trust him or not. And when we don't, we tend to make idols of things in our own lives, idols of comfort, idols of whatever we might think is a better way than what God had done it. And they failed to trust God's plan. They failed to, to say, you know, we don't know where Moses is. Oh, we do know where Moses is. We don't know when he's coming down. But we know, God, that you have delivered us from Egypt. You've delivered us from the hand of bondage and sin. And we're going to trust you and we're going to believe you. And so this is a perfect example for our own lives to do such thing. They fail prey to not trusting God. And we can too. But we can also be people that learn from their example and say, well, when I don't know the timing of God, I'm going to believe God and I'm going to wait. And I'm only going to follow the orders he has given me until then. I think another thing we can see here is that we make idols or they make idols when we forget God's grace to us. And this is really a powerful thing to me is that, you know, Aaron instructed the people to remove their gold rings and to use them to build the idols, right? He said, build the, you know, take off your earrings and, and bring them to me. And he brought them, they brought them forth and they made the golden calf. But I think it's significant for us to understand where did this, this gold come from? This gold came from the hand of God. In the sense that it was God's deliverance over Egypt that even provided this gold. When they left Egypt, they left with the spoils of Egypt. God said that I'm going to give you, you're going to be able to ask the Egyptians of whatever you want, basically, and they're going to give it to you because they're going to be so ready for you to get out of there because of what I've done. And these things that God gave them, bestowed on these blessings, they took and made a golden calf with. And we can even learn that from our own life, that there are things in our lives that God does bless us with and give us that we can make idols of, that we can forge and begin to follow after and pursue as if those things are God itself, but it's not. But they were blessings from God. They're not evil in itself, but we can follow after them as if they are. What's so sad about this story is that the Israelites, and I believe this, they did desire to follow a God. And, and we know this because they tell Aaron, like, make us a God to follow. Make us gods who shall go before us they still wanted to go forward into the promised land they still wanted to do these things but we need a god to follow but the problem was that they declared it to be the kind of god they wanted and in fact what's really sad is that aaron even told the people that look tomorrow shall be a feast and it shall be to the lord now word lord there means yahweh aaron declared that the golden calf in front of them was yahweh and it's sad, but this is what people do and hum humanity does, is that we say, I want to follow a God, and this is going to be the Lord. And they paint a picture of God that's not truly who God is or who God declared himself to be. And they follow after it. God's sitting there saying, what are you doing? That's not me. Don't follow after that. You may think that's me, but it's not. This is what humanity does. We try to change God to our likings and to our personal preferences.
But then we come to part this 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 scene where God calls Moses and says, "Go down, for the people are corrupted. You know they're evil. They've done sinful things. They've built a golden calf." And He even says to them in verse nine, "And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people." And this is a word that's going to come up over and over again in the biblical narrative. But I think one of the an interesting thing just to think about in this section is He calls them a stiff-necked people. And the golden calf was stiff-necked. If we're, if we're just being logical here, it's a golden calf, so it's made of metal, and it's stiff. Its neck cannot move. And I think it's kind of, a, a for us, a, a play on words here to almost say, you become what you worship. And these people created a golden calf with a stiff neck, and then they became stiff-necked people. They became like that thing which they worshipped. And I think this teaches us a lot that whatever we idolize in our life, whatever we put in front of God, whatever we declare to be our gods or the things we follow, we become like that thing. People desire to be like a professional athlete that they idolize. They do everything. They walk like them, talk like them, dress like them. They become that thing. And I think this is a true thing, a true principle we can learn here is that people become what they worship. But but Paul even picked up on this, I would say, because in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says that we behold the Lord. Right? When we behold the Lord, we behold Jesus. When we do so, we are transformed like him. And so that you and I, as we behold Jesus and worship Jesus and fix our eyes and gaze upon Jesus and worship Jesus, we will become like him. Just like these people gazed upon a golden calf and became like that golden calf, we too, as we gaze upon Jesus, become like Jesus because we worship Jesus. So it's a sad scene, but then Moses gets down there and he intercedes for the people. And this is powerful wording here. And so I'll read it to you. It's verse 11. But Moses implored the, implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Whom have you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from the, this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, land that I have promised I will give to your offspring that they shall inherit forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. And this is such a beautiful passage. It's a beautiful picture of even Jesus and how Jesus intercedes for us on our behalf. And how though we are stiff-necked people just like they were, Jesus interceded for us and has saved us. But one of the most interesting things about this is Moses' prayer. I think it's really important for us to understand. What does he call attention to for God to change his mind in this sense? What are the things he, he says to God? And really what he does is he brings up God's name and God's character. And those are two things God cares about. Scripture is very clear. God cares about His name, very much so. And there's, it's filled through the Old Testament. And I had a list of scriptures, but I'm not going to read them all to you. But there's plenty of scriptures that talk about God did things for His namesake and then also on His character. What He did is He said this. He asked God or He reminded God of His covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And I even think about in Genesis 15 that we had read about where God had cut a covenant with Abraham and sliced the animals down. And instead of Abraham walking down the covenant, God walked down by himself proclaiming this, I'm going to be the one that's faithful to the covenant. Regardless of your failures, Abraham, because you will fail. And he did. If we remember in 16, he failed the very next chapter. God didn't abandon the covenant because he was faithful to it because he is faithful. And so it's like Moses says, "Like, look, you've made the covenant, God, and you're the faithful one. 
you are faithful. And God hears that and he answers it. He calls on God based off of God's characters and God's promises. And these are lessons we can learn about even praying in our own lives, right? And then secondly, he brings up the importance of God's name. And even in Ezekiel 20 um, and in other places in the Bible, God basically said, look, I, I saved them out of Egypt for my namesake. And I did so so the nations would not uh, mock or look upon me with disdain. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing this, of course. But that he did it for his name. And that the eyes of the nation would not sit there and mock God. But for his name's sake, he did this. And I think it's really important for us to understand this teaches us a lot about prayer and intercession about things in our life, that when we go to God, how do we go to God? I think we should go to God understanding who is God. And, and I'll give you an example. The other day in my own life, I was praying, and I was just really desiring, God, I want to be intimate with you. Like, I desire intimacy with you. I need intimacy with you. And, and I told God, I said, I'm, I'm not coming based off of my own merit or what I've done this week or how good I am, but I'm coming because you declare yourself to be a God of relationship and fellowship. You tell us that in Scripture. That's who you are. Like, that's what you've been after. Even in the garden, that's what you desired was intimacy with us. And so, Lord, I come based off of who you are, not on what I am. And he answers that. And I think that's what he did with Moses here. He came to God on the grounds of, God, you are faithful and you don't abandon covenants. And God, you care about your name. This is who you are. And God answered. It teaches us a lot about our own life of intercession and also about just any any type of prayer that we have, right? You go to God, God, we come to you on the basis for healing, not on the basis because we, we've twisted your arm with fasting and prayer or we've done something enough, but because you declare yourself to be the healer. And so, God, be faithful to that. Be faithful to your name. Be faithful who you declare yourself to be, not what I've earned this week. And I think we can learn a lot about Moses' intercessory prayer there. And so the story picks up in verse 15 where Israel fails, in a sense, to own up to their sin. And Moses comes down from the mountain, and he tells Israel, uh, or, or he's getting ready to come down from the mountain, when God tells him of Israel's sin. And when he gets down there, he sees the people, he's angry, and so he breaks the tablet. Moses destroys the idol that they made. And I think this is an important thing. Idols are not meant to be managed in our life, but they're meant to be destroyed. Moses knew that Moses was not going to allow that idolatry to go on, but he destroys it. And so this is something just important for us to even think about, that we cannot allow idols to continue on in our lives. And Moses then confronts the people in Aaron in Exodus 32, 21 says this, What did these people do to you that you led them into such grave sin? And Aaron responded in such a way where he would immediately shift the blame, right? So Moses goes there and he, and he says, like, what have you done? Like, what is going on? You've led these people into this terrible place. And, and Aaron says, like, well, um, the people made me do it. And instead of owning up to his failures as a leader, he blames the people. And he even goes so, so far to lie and say the golden calf formed itself. And we read it earlier that the golden calf actually, they formed it. But Aaron's now saying, no, just we just put it in there and it just came out. You know, like, it's it's really laughable. It's like, are you serious? Like, you think that thing just made itself like that? But he, he's not owning up to his own sin and his mistakes. And we can learn a lot from these things. And this is why I love what we read earlier uh, in Corinthians, is that there's so much we can learn from these stories and from the people in the wilderness. But we tend to blame others for our mistakes. 
Instead of owning our own sins, this is this is the nature of humanity. This is what we see on display here. They have reasons or excuses and, and blaming one another for these things. And Aaron doing this, blaming the people, is much. It's to bring us. It's to bring us back or to make us think back. Hey, Adam did that. Adam did that with Eve. It's Eve's fault, you know. And then Eve blamed the serpent. None of them could own up to their own sin. And in a sense, Adam even blamed God. It, it's Eve, the woman you gave me, God. It's like these people just continuously blaming one after another. And this is something that we do. And so when God confronts our sin, we must not push the blame away. But we have to be people who agree with Him and repent and call upon the Lord to forgive us of our sins. And so what happens next is Moses then calls anyone to himself who is for the Lord. And it says that the Levites actually respond to him and they go and they kill 3,000 people as Moses commands. And what's really neat about this because it's kind of like okay he just killed 3,000 is when you think about Levi the tribe of Levi or the son of Levi what was the last thing we heard about him in the end of Genesis is that he was basically in a sense he wasn't really blessed by his dad his dad spoke very ill of him and it's like this moment the Levites his lineage rise up and stand on the side of God and from this point on it's like God in a sense, blesses them. Even though they didn't have blessing before this, now God gives blessing because they stood with God. They stood for the Lord. They represented and did what God asked them to do there. And so God blessed them for their obedience. And so we know when we walk in obedience of things that are even difficult, God will bless us for this. And so it's an important thing for us to understand there also. So Moses tells the people they've committed a great sin. And he says, look, I'm going to go up and, and hopefully, you know, I can atone for the sins of the people. And so Moses goes up there and he tries to intercede for the people. And he goes so far to even say, but now if you will forgive their sin, right? He says, to God, but now if you forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. Moses offers himself up in the place of the people, but yet God refuses his offer. God then, and so then God brings the judgment upon the people with a plague. And I think it's interesting to see right here, this is a type of Jesus that Moses plays. Moses, who offered himself up in the place of the people, is definitely a picture of Jesus. But unlike Moses, who God rejected his offer, God does receive Jesus. And in fact, he doesn't just receive, he sends Jesus to be the one to make atonement for the sins. He is the one who puts himself upon the cross. God sent his son. And it talks about it even pleased the father to, for the punishment, right? It pleased to stricken him because he was atoning for our sins. And so this is just a picture of where as great of a man as he was, he could not atone for the sins of the people. But Jesus Christ did through his death on the cross for us. And so we move on to Exodus 33, and this is an awesome, awesome chapter. Really, 33 and 34 is really awesome. And it, it's really about how Moses desires for God's presence and not just for a blessing. And so I actually read the first three verses for us. It said, The Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people from whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you. And that's key. I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Peverites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this, they mourned. 
This is a powerful thing we see here. Because what God is declaring to Israel is, look, I'm, I'm still faithful to the covenant. Okay, I'm still going to be faithful to the covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to give them the land, the promised land, and all these things. But I myself, I'm not going with you. Because you're stiff-necked and you're corrupt people. But I'll send an angel and he'll win the battles and he'll open up the land. And with that will come great blessing and you'll have the great land of that place that will be blossoming and all this good stuff. But I'm not going. God makes it very clear with them that if he does go with them, he will destroy them. And simply being, not because he just wants to be angry at them, but because they're wicked. They're going to continue to sin and mess up. And if I go with you, I'll end up destroying you because of judgment. And so these people also understood the reason why they mourned, I think, is because they really understood they needed the presence of God. They needed the presence of God. This was a huge deal. It was the presence of God that led them this far. And for God to say, I'm not going with you, was like, oh goodness, what are we going to do? Right? Like, we, we don't want... We, we, we don't want to go without you. And this is really where Moses is not satisfied with this. I, I, I kind of wonder if the people would have been satisfied. Okay, well, well, we'll go forward. And it's even a check in our own lives. Like, are we okay with just receiving blessings from God but not receiving God himself? Are we okay with God making sure that we have money in the bank or that our cars are running fine or our children are doing good and that, you know, I got a 4.0 and all these things in my life and I'm satisfied with that but I don't really have an intimacy with the presence of God in my life. And that's a temptation that we can fall into. But one of the things that we see here is that by God saying, you know, I'm not going to go with you. After he just given all this instruction about the tabernacle and what it was going to be for, how God's presence would dwell in the midst of them. Basically, God's saying, I'm not going to fill the tabernacle. And so I believe that's why the people mourned, is they realized, what are we going to do without it? So in verse 7, we see this little section here where it talks about how Moses would formerly go, and he used to pitch the tent outside the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And so this is the place that Moses would go and meet with God outside the camp, but this was never God's long-term plan. You see, the tabernacle was what God wanted to do. It was in the tabernacle that God was going to dwell fully in the midst of his people. But now because of Israel's sin, this was no longer going to happen. God's presence had departed from Israel. In some wording, it would almost be as if God's presence had even departed from the tent of meeting here. And so it's like the presence of God is gone and these people are no longer great. But then Moses once again comes before the Lord and says beautiful intercession. And so verse 12, and I think this speaks volumes about Moses' personal desire for God, but it says this, Moses said to the Lord, See you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know that you, in order to find favor in your sight, consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people, and from every other people in the face of the earth. And so Moses has this conversation with God where it's basically, look, we can't go up without you. An angel will not do. I'm not satisfied with the blessing. I'm not satisfied with all those good things. I'm not satisfied with the promised land. We want you. We need you. You've got to go with us. And I think that this teaches us so much how desperate we ought to be as individuals and as the church for the presence of God to go with us wherever it is. Right? He even says here, what is going to make them distinct? 
it is the presence of God. And if you actually look in Acts chapter 2, where we read about all these wonderful things they're doing at the end of Acts chapter 2, they're continuing the word, prayer, there's no one with need. You got to think what happened in order for that to happen. The Spirit of God came, the presence of God came, and it made the people of God distinct in that day. And it says they had favor with everyone. And it's the same here. He understood that the presence of God is what was going to make the people of God distinct and that he needed and they needed God's presence and they could not go with just an angel. And so God agrees and God says, look, I'm going to go with you. And I think it's so powerful because it speaks volumes of Moses' desire for God, right? His desire to say, I want God. I don't just want what God can do for me, but I want God in my life. And so as Christians, we have to understand it's not even just obedience to the word in a sense like we look at the word and we say look i fulfill all the word and i'm good and i do all these things the pharisees did that and that's not what made them distinct in the way that acts chapter 2 did for the early church but it was the presence of god so always this teaches us i need the presence of god i have to seek after the face of god the presence of god in my life but it doesn't just end there with moses because i think this is what's so beautiful about moses moses is somebody who desires more Though he just had this encounter with God in this way, he desires more from God. And this is what it says in verse 17 through 23. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. He's not satisfied. He wants to see God's glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. And this is it is beautiful because it speaks of Moses was not satisfied. He did not stop at, okay, God had... God has relented. God is coming with us. But he even made a personal request saying, please let me see your glory. Spurgeon said that this is the greatest petition that a man could ever ask of God is to know and to see God's glory. What's so incredible is that God even responds to Moses here, right? He responds to him with a yes, but he also kind of responds to him with a no. Like, hey, I'm going to allow you to see my glory, but you can't see me in the fullest. You can't. Because if you do, you'll die. If you see my face, you'll die. So you'll look at my backside. But what's amazing about this is that as great as an event as this was for Moses, and we would all be like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. We have it better today. And let me explain what I mean by that. It's simply saying, when Moses got to see the backside of God, Scripture tells us in Colossians that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. That is who we get to behold. So while they, he saw the backside of God, we now get to gaze and look into Jesus and see the full, perfect expression of the invisible God, Jesus Christ himself. That is who we behold. And like I said earlier, 1 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another 
Moses got to see the backside of God and he even talks about how when he came down and his face was radiant from it. How much more than when we behold and look upon Jesus as our face shine forth of the glory of God and our lives are transformed of God's goodness in Jesus Christ. How much better do we have it with Jesus than Moses had it even on that mountain. And I think we take that for granted. We don't realize how wonderful it is. In Exodus 34, Moses gets the new tablets. The covenant is renewed. And God blesses them in this sense. And it's beautiful. And then God says this about himself to his name in, in verses 6 through 8. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Lord, the Lord, a God of merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. For who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worship. It was so awesome. Moses' response, when he saw who God was, all he could do was worship. And I think we have to have that same. When we see God and how glorious he is, oh, that we would bow down and worship. And that we would say, oh my gosh, he's so much better than I could ever imagine. You see, Moses had known God in many glorious ways. He had known him as Yahweh. He had known him as the great I am and the self-sufficiency, self-existence, not needing anything at the burning bush. And how amazing God was in the Exodus. But he did not, but he did not know him in this way. And so when he saw him this way, he fell down in utter amazement. And just, it's like, I bet he couldn't even look up anymore. He asked God, let me see you. And this is what God shows him. And he couldn't even stand that he fell down and worshiped how glorious God was. And it's so amazing what God declares about himself here. Because it is not a man who declares this or defines God here. No man can ever define God. But God is the one who defines who he is and what he does. And we just simply have to bow down and worship and agree that is who you are, God, and we worship you for these things. And so there's several things in this scripture that are really powerful. I just want to look at what God says in these verses because they're used again and again in the Bible. But he says this, he is merciful. Oh, he is merciful. And I think we have to always remember these things about God because it changes us. It helps us. It gets us through the day. It gets us through life. God is merciful. Look, we're going to mess up. We're going to butcher things. We're going to do things that we never thought we would do before. But God is merciful. Endless mercy that never runs out. He cares about his people. God is gracious. He's gracious in the sense that 100% of the good in us has come from God. He does it all. He's the one who influences our heart and who empowers us to live lives that we could not do on our own. God is gracious. He says it about himself. He even says, I'm slow to anger here. This speaks of the patience of God. This speaks that God is not desirous to bring judgment, but he desires to bring love and he desires to bring forgiveness first and foremost. It says that God abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I just think about that. It speaks that God is loyal and faithful to his promises and that God's love is endless. There is never this word steadfast here in a picture. It never wavering, never dipping, never rising higher than it is, but it is steadfast, meaning constantly the same. His love does not change for you based off of tomorrow or yesterday or your sins. His faithfulness to your life does not change based off of how you've performed today, but it is consistent, steadfast force. And this is what God says about I abound in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this is who we get to know as our God. And then he says, God is forgiving. He lifts the guilt off of our shoulders and he cleanses us from sins where we had no ability to do. 
But he ends it in a way where he says he won't allow people to go unpunished. He won't allow sin to go unpunished. And this declares that God is just. And it's good that God is just. God is not going to allow things that are sinful, unrighteousness to reign. Y'all, if God did not bring judgment, unrighteousness would never be passed away. That's even with Jesus when he pours out the wrath in, in Revelation. It's so that sin can be completely removed. So God is just. But what's so beautiful about this is that the comparison, he says, look, I, I want to be loving and merciful and gracious and have compassion and all these things to the thousandth generation. But my judgment goes to the third and fourth generation. Meaning it's these two extreme differences. How much greater is God's love and mercy and grace than even the judgment He wishes to bring? It shows you God's first desire and first choice is always forgiveness. But He will judge if He has to. And so that He's not going to allow sin to go unpunished for that. But I think what what is amazing is that when you read this, some people would say, well, God seems bipolar here. He's not bipolar. He's just declaring what He's going to do through His Son, Jesus. God did not let sin go unpunished. But in fact, He punished His own Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That all of humanity's sin will be put upon Him. I've said this before, but I remind myself of it often. That if you could stack your sin up for one day, and you know the feeling of sin and the guilt and the shame you feel when you do it. But if you could stack all your sin up for one day upon you, the weight you'd feel. And then get all your sin for the whole week, put it on yourself. You imagine how heavy you would feel. Imagine if you could do it for a month, all the sin you've done in one month and put it on you at one moment's time, how much weight you'd feel. Now imagine a year, imagine 10 years, you'd be crushed. Imagine your lifetime. You could not bear that for that moment. Now imagine doing that for 60 to 80 billion people upon a cross while you're physically suffering also. And that is exactly what Jesus did. That is exactly, God said, I will not let sin go unpunished. And he did not. He put the sin of 60 to 80 billion, and I'm just getting that number because that's where most people think how many humans have lived on the earth or, or since the earth's been around. That many people's sins put on Jesus Christ on the cross. What that would do to a man, but Jesus bore it for my sin. And God punished sin by putting it on His Son, Jesus. And now we have an escape from that punishment and sin because of Jesus Christ. And so God, yes, he, does, he desires forgiveness, but He's not going to let sin go unpunished, and He did not let sin go unpunished. And now He desires all men to come to repentance to know Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's beautiful. And so just to wrap this up, because Exodus 35 through 40 is kind of like a recap. You've already read this. You would read it and you would say, okay, well, I've already seen all this, the dimensions of the tabernacle and all this stuff, what is going on here. But it's really significant because in Exodus 35 through 40, it's like now it's being built. Now we're seeing it happen. And what we're seeing is the people of God are taking part. They're actually obeying this time. They're walking in it. They're excited. They're doing the things they're supposed to be doing. And it's creating this beautiful place called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was, in a sense, a return to Eden. Okay, so let me explain this. Eden acted as a place where God's presence would dwell, and the tabernacle acted as a place where God's presence would dwell. 
Eden was created by the work of the Spirit of God in Genesis 1 and 2. It hovered over, right? And the creation came out from that. The tabernacle was built by the Israelites who were anointed by the Spirit of God to build the tabernacle, right? And this is found in Exodus 36, 1 through 7. So essentially this, the Spirit was responsible for creating this dwelling place of God in the creation account. And now the Spirit's responsible in Exodus 36 through 40 where the presence of God would dwell. Eden is where God desired to dwell with man, and the tabernacle is where God desired to dwell with Israel. And this will become a progressive theme throughout the narrative of the Bible. We will begin to see God, here's Eden, the tabernacle, the temple, Jesus Christ himself. The word when it says he would dwell with man means he tabernacled with us. Then the church where the spirit of God now lives us and we're all a dwelling place. And then ultimately it ends in this new beautiful place called the new Jerusalem where the presence of God and it says God is dwelling with man once again. And so it's this beautiful picture that they've returned to Eden. They've, or in a sense, they've, with the tabernacle. And now the presence of God is dwelling in the midst of man. But... When that happens, the book closes out. And, and I'll, I'll actually read this section of Scripture to us just to give us a little understanding of what happens here because you would be a little confused. And so it, it closes out and Moses does everything God commands him and they build the tabernacle and it's all finished. But one thing has to happen and this is what happens in verse 34. And then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, and the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And what we see here is God has descended upon the tabernacle. His presence is in the midst of the people in a way it's never been before. As much as Israel has seen God, and as much as Moses has even seen God, they have never known this kind of presence of the tabernacle where God has descended upon them in this way. And is so powerful that not even Moses can enter in. Where Moses once entered into the tent of meeting with God, he cannot enter the tabernacle. And the amazing thing about this is it's because God is holy. This is where it sets it up. Exodus, the story of Exodus continues in Leviticus. And I hope that this will kind of get you a little excited as we, we cover Leviticus to understand this. Is that God is holy. And Moses couldn't enter into this place where God's presence was so great because God is so holy. And Moses himself, even Moses, was not. And so what was God going to do? Right? Because here's this law he's given and he's given this beautiful law that is good but they can't keep it so they're not holy enough they can't enter in his presence and the way the bible is laid out is the first five books of the bible is called the pentateuch or the torah and it's actually one big book in the jewish history in the bible and the response to exodus and to particularly the ending of exodus where moses couldn't get into the tabernacle is leviticus and leviticus is this it is the entrance way into the presence and the holiness of God. And so I pray that as we go through Leviticus next week, you would understand it has so much impact and meaning because God has always wanted to dwell with these men, but he's got to get them holy. And the way he does that is through the rituals and the sacrifices through Leviticus. But we know the greater picture of it all is going to be Jesus Christ, who has made us holy, that now we can enter into the presence of God. 
So thank you for listening. I pray this episode blessed you. I pray you took some things away that could really challenge you and stir your faith in Christ. I love you and thank you for listening again. God bless. Thanks so much for listening. For more FNT Bible Talk, be sure to subscribe and visit fntchurch.org for more information.